the ASCO Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton. I'm Mary Bowstead and I'm Joint General Secretary with Kevin Courtney of the National Education Union. And Mary, people listening to this will know you in that role and they will see you speaking on behalf of the NEU, etc. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about this book you've written, uh, Support, Not Surveillance. And essentially it's about recruitment and retention. It's about Ofsted in part. It's about comparing what it's like to be a teacher in the UK with being a teacher overseas. Let's go back. How come you are writing about something like this? Because there's a whole kind of hinterland to your life, isn't there, which is rooted in teacher education, which I think people might not know about. So give us some of the backstory. My life story in in education. Okay, so um, I was an English teacher, a head of English. Uh, Then I uh, went and set up the PGC English course at the University of York. And I used to send students to you when you were head of English at Huntington High School in New York. Uh, I did. I was in universities and higher education for uh, 12 years. I ended up being head of education at the Department of Education, Kingston University. And then I um, applied for and was appointed and then elected as General Secretary of the Association of Teachers and Lecturers in 2023. And in 2017, uh, ATL merged with the NUT to become the National Education Union. So I've had a career of 40 years or so in education. And what struck me from those days back in New York when I used to see your PGCE English students and occasionally came and did sessions with them is it was not about delivering a curriculum. Of course, there is an element of that. The level of pastoral care, I used to see the students needing to get in touch with you because they were panicking about behaviour management or just worn down and stuff like that. That is a key element, isn't it, in running those kind of courses? Yeah, I mean, initial teacher training is really tough. Um, you know, at York, the, the, the students came in with really good degrees. It was very tough to get on the course. Um, they were generally very highly performing, very motivated, very dedicated um, trainee teachers. But the initial teacher training year is really, really tough. You can be fantastic at your subject and be completely destroyed by a bad lesson. Uh, you can be in departments where... Um, you know, you're not getting the support, not in your department, of course, not no, where no. you were, but uh, in departments where you're not getting the support that you need. Um, you can be going through personal trouble and traumas and all those become, it's like a vortex. If things start going wrong on your initial teacher training year, it's like a vortex. And then you've got an extremely heavy workload. Um, so people do find it sometimes really challenging and difficult. And and part of my job, an important part of my job, was to make sure that the 21 trainees, training teachers that I recruited, graduated and went and worked in schools to make it doable for them. Now, what's striking about the book and also when we listen to you talking is that the statistics about recruitment and retention in England particularly are eye-wateringly bad, Mm. aren't they? Just give us a flavour of how bad they are. So, uh, in England, uh, we have... um, Last week, we saw um, the initial teacher training figures, which showed that the government has recruited just over half, 57% of its target, that virtually every secondary subject um, is a shortage subject, even English, which used to be, when I ran the PGC English course at York, used to be full by October half term, um, it's 20% under target. Um, And basically, all the EBAC subjects um, are... 
virtually all of them are under target, some of them by a massive amount, biology by nearly 40%, computer studies by uh, about the same, physics, only one in six of the um, numbers needed are recruited. But even primary is 11% below target. Now, primary used to be the government's get-out clause where you'd over-recruit on primary and that would mask under-recruitment on secondary. It's not doing that anymore. So we've got a calamitous situation where graduates are choosing not to go into teaching and then you've got an, that, that calamity is compounded by the fact that 40% of teachers leave within 10 years of qualification, nearly a third leave within five years, quarter leave within two years of qualification. So... Those are appalling retention rates. And what that results in is England in particular, in the OECD, having the most inexperienced teaching workforce. And it means that teachers who are just about beginning to get experienced, who could give their younger colleagues a lot of support and help when they're faced with a million things to do, just guiding them to what's important and what could be left in a way that senior management may find much more difficult because they have a they have a performance review function. But your more experienced colleagues, friends and mentors in the staff room, they're just leaving and it leaves an, increase, an increasingly young workforce without the support and guidance that it needs. Hence, they leave. Now, what you do in the book is you map out the problems with that and, and you then move to a series of solutions at the end. But I want to just spend a bit of time on what the issues are. And some of what you do is to look at international perspectives and what we can learn from looking overseas. And you most definitely put the boot into a lot of endlessly changing government policy and into Ofsted. And we'll come to Ofsted in a second. But so what is it distinctively that is leading those graduates who do decide to become teachers to not stick around more than five five or ten years? What, what are the issues that they're having to deal with? So I think there are s several, but I think they all interrelate. I think the first is uh, workload intensity. Now, the Department for Education measures workload hours, and our workload hours are some amongst the worst in the OECD. So, um, uh, you know, we top the league table, the OECD league table, for working time outside lessons. So, in 2018, in the Teaching Learning International Survey, which is run by the OECD, which I use a lot in the book as a source of evidence, um, primary teachers spent nearly 32 hours and secondary teachers nearly 33 hours, in addition to their teaching, working on uh, education classroom-related work. That tops the OECD for hours spent outside the classroom. So we do more of that. So what does that mean? Uh, and then there's another survey which I use in the book, which is, again, really important. It's the British Skills and Employment Survey. It's been running since 1997. And every five years, um, the researchers go into a household across the country and they interview one worker in the household across a whole range of professions. And then they've now been able to extract the teacher data. And what that shows is that teachers have seen the greatest intensification of work of any other profession. And they measure work intensification by the pace that you have to work at, mental or physical pace. And, and teachers, I think, I think it's quite a hard physical job, but a very hard mental job. I think teaching a lesson is mentally taxing. Mm -hmm. And um, the level of control you have over the work you do and what they report is that teachers have seen the greatest level of intensification of all professions. It's unprecedented. And that teachers are reporting 
that they're exhausted. 85% of teachers say they're exhausted at the single end of every single working day. And what also is mapped in that is that um, 20 years ago, teachers were reporting much higher levels of discretion and control over the work they do. Now it's very low levels of control and very low levels of choice about the work they do. And when you get that, the OECD says this, high work intensity but low professional discretion, that's a very toxic situation. When you compound that with um, now most professions, you've got some ability to work flexibly and you compound that with the teacher profession being 76% women, the majority of which will have caring responsibilities and they find a very inflexible, very work intensive, very long work hours culture with low work discretion, then that drives people from the profession. Now, there are some things which presumably government can do and some levers they can pull and some things that the people I represent, school and college leaders, could be doing. What could government either stop doing or do more of? So my chapter about government uh, in the book is called Do Less Better. I think that's the title. Government should do less better. Um, and uh, when you... Um, when you uh, survey school leaders, what they, the biggest workload they report is uh, frequent changes to government policy. Teachers report that too. So the hand of government sits heavily upon schools. And uh, in my book, I detail the reforms from 2014 to 2016. I went to the House of Commons Library and I just researched all the reforms. I put them in one place in the grid. And one teacher who read the book said to me, just reading that table gave him oh, a flashback. Yeah. Um, you know, on the top of leaders and teachers' ordinary workloads, there was this mountain of uh, consultations, proposals um, uh, and uh, revisions, which the profession was expected to respond to, given completely inadequate time to do so. But at the end, the government had to have three goes, the three different sectors of states, to divide, define what a pass at GCSE was. Was it a strong pass? Was it a four? Was it a five? You know, three different secretaries of state had to clarify, in inverted commas, that. So it was breakneck reform, badly done, and with no thought whatsoever about the profession. And when I spoke to the then schools minister, who's back now, Nick Gibb, about that, and I said, this is untenable, he said, well, we'll just get this done and that'll be all right. But of course, it's never just all right. And that is no way to treat the profession. If you're going to do curriculum reform and assessment reform, you should do it in a measured, planned and sustainable way. If you look at a country like Japan, if they're going to, they, they change the textbooks every 10 years. That changing of the textbook is a major piece of work involving employers, involving uh, uh, academics, involving the profession. So they get it as right as they can. And then they stick with something they think is the best it can be until it gets through in the next reform period. So none of the principles of involving the profession, taking it steadily, doing it in a staged way was done. And it's led to the profession saying government, um, um, uh, in go government frequent changes in government policy making are one of the major reasons for intensification of workload. So government must do less and do it much better. I mean, the government here is an outlier, isn't it, in, in the sense that we've got this, I think most people would agree, a centralisation agenda. So there's the assumption that we in Westminster know better than you out in the sticks how education should run, whether it's around teacher training, whether it's around the Oak National Academy, whether it's around a whole swathe of things to do with the curriculum. 
We are the outlier because in other places, what politicians wouldn't think it was their responsibility to have that kind of control, which ends up taking the control and the autonomy away from individual teachers. Well, I think, it's, I think it varies. I mean, I've been to the International Summit for the Teaching Profession for 11 of the last 12, and that's 12 times taken place, and that's a summit of education ministers and trade union leaders. The minister has to take the trade union leader along with them. So I've been sitting next to Nick Gibb uh, for many of those summits, and uh, it usually ends up in a spectacular row, which everyone enjoy, enjoys. But um, and when, when those summits started in New York in 2010, uh, up until about 2014, the, the key concern of the ministers there was how do we measure performance? How do we assess productivity? How do we introduce performance-related pay? And then gradually, the realisation dawned that it's very difficult to measure productivity in something which is as ephemeral as education. It's really difficult. At the average classroom, with all its interactions, it's really difficult to measure performance reliably and productivity reliably. And actually... In doing these measurements, what was happening was life was becoming intolerable for the people being measured, the teachers. Uh, and other... Now, when I went to Valencia last year, where, um, uh, to the International Summit, it was really remarkable how many nations said, top-performing nations, because only the top 25 nations in the OECD for education are allowed to go to that summit, and really top-performing nations like Singapore uh, were saying, we're moving away from that. That has just made life intolerable. It's taken, it's focused attention on what you can measure rather than what's important. It's really noticeable that there's no such move like that in England. And yet we have, we have, uh, we are in the middle of a, a, a catastrophic teacher supply crisis. And no amount of well-being charters produced by the government are going to work unless you deal with the material conditions of teachers' and leaders' lives. And in the book, you know, I want the, le the leader who reviewed it, Dan Morrow, said that he was expecting a blast against leaders, and it's not there. I don't blast against leaders. I say these are, these are the issues which are taking place in schools, but leaders and teachers are equally victims of this, and we need to work together to try and change the material circumstances of our work. Yeah, we'll come back to one aspect of that, which is the role of Ofsted in, in all of that. Just before we do so, uh, I went into the book assuming it would be a kind of misty-eyed, sentimental homage to kind of 1970s teaching. It's, it's a million miles away from that. Just, just explain to us why this is not just looking to a, a rather sentimental version of what teaching ever was. Because I think, um, well, first of all, I hope that my career has shown I'm interested in evidence. And um, so misty-eyed isn't me. Uh, I said when I wrote the book that I wanted evidence polemic. Uh, it is a polemic. It's a polemic in defence of the profession. But you have to have the evidence to back that, that up. So you will see that every statement I make, there's a reference. So if you want to argue with it, go to the reference and then mm. argue with the research I am quoting the research. There are sections of the book where I write about what a noble, um, noble profession teaching is, but they are they're there at the beginning and the end. That the, the the whole of the middle is about the evidence surrounding the conditions of teachers' working lives and leaders' working lives, and it is packed full of evidence and reference to the evidence. I think that's really important. I knew that when I wrote this book, I would be attacked by the right 
and by um, the status quo and the establishment. I knew that. And I, so I knew that I had to be scrupulous in uh, the evidence base. That's why TALIS is so important. That's why uh, the British Skills and Employment Service is so important, but loads of other evidence as well, including DfE evidence um, from school leaders uh, as well. Some of the evidence which caught my eye particularly is you've got a whole chapter about poverty. And I know I've listened to you before when we talk about what standards at 16 look like and how much predetermined they are before a child goes to school. Um, And I guess the thesis there is schools can do so much, but the state and parents have to also do stuff. That's right, isn't it? That is right. Um, I think the, the chapter on child poverty is the... Uh, most polemical in the book and that's because it makes me mad I think it's an affront Mm. to our um, dignity as a nation to have uh, the uh, children uh, the percentage of children that we do have living in poverty and the chapter really makes three points the first is that um, as Michael Gove was talking about uh, uh, you know the poverty of low expectations blaming teachers for the poverty of low expectations. His government, through the austerity programme, was throwing hundreds of thousands of uh, children into poverty, um, re- cutting the um, the local authority central grant, government grant, by 40%, uh, which has led to youth clubs being closed down, children's social workers leaving, um, family liaison officers, speech and language therapists, um, going, crisising children and adolescent mental health services, which means that you have to be suicidal and it still won't be seen in six months. So all the support services around schools went. And then schools were suffered to real-term cuts in school funding, which meant that there that schools and teachers and support staff and leaders are the last profession often less standing in a desert of public services, which should be there to support families. And... You know, one stat I think is really important in that chapter, which is the from the Education Policy Institute in 2016, when they did their report on grammar schools, when Theresa May was saying she wanted to be about grammar schools, which is that 40% of the attainment gap is created before children start school. And my point in that chapter is that is just too big a gap to make up. If we want more young people to do well then stop making their lives a misery. And my other point is, you know, when you say this to the right, they always say, I've got children born in poverty and they've escaped. What they are relying on is that either those children are exceptional or very lucky. We don't rely, we don't expect middle-class children to rely on being exceptional or lucky. They get the support they need. And if it's not there in school or in the community, their parents provide it. But the, the children who most need the support it's just not there because it's been shorn away through austerity. And then that, of course, is compounded um, now by the cost of living crisis, which is throwing more and more um, uh, children into poverty, and by deliberate government policies like the two-child limit, which is just a vicious policy. Why? On, on what planet can it be the child's fault that they're the third child in the family? Last part of the discussion. The book 
takes aim at Ofsted in its current incarnation, and indeed in previous incarnations. But it's not a book which is against the notion of ins- inspection. So you, 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 you give what I think is a very humane and interesting model of inspection. But let's start about why should a book which is about teacher well-being, teacher effectiveness, take aim quite so much at Ofsted? What is, what is the problem with Ofsted? Well, I think Ofsted drives, in too many schools, a toxic working culture where decisions are not made about what is best for this school, what is best for these pupils, but decisions are made whether whether I and Ofsted. And, you know, in negotiations with government, I frequently say to ministers, you think the latest circular you're producing is really important. No one will read it. What they read is the latest Ofsted framework. That's what leaders go and get CPD on, and that's what drives practice in schools. Now, you know, you look at... Oster's desperate attempt to uh, relate uh, cognitive science to early years, uh, you know, about throwing a ball or to subjects like art subjects like English. And you realise that that's got a very shaky evidence base. And so then I ask the question, OK, Ofsted's really important. So what do we know about Ofsted? And then I look at the research into two key aspects of Ofsted work. It's validity. So Ofsted claims that its inspection process raises school standards. And I look into that claim and I find that nowhere in its over 30 year history now has Ofsted done any independent research to interrogate whether that is true. The only reference point Ofsted has is 80% of schools are good or better, but that's an entirely (laughs) self-referential point. The second um, um, research I look at from Ofsted is, are the inspections reliable? So what that question says is, two inspector teams went into a school would they, um, and looked at the same school, would they produce the same grade? And um, the, there's two lots of evidence about that. The first is when inspectors and researchers went in to trial the new inspection framework and the results of reliability, inspectors come to the same judgment in secondary, were appalling, absolutely appalling. That's never been... That, you know, that was an embarrassment. Ofsted tried to say, we're very pleased with these. And it was Tom Richmond from EDSK who looked into them and said, hold on a moment, this is really bad. Yeah. The results were only brought up by primary, better judgments in primary. And secondly, uh, I looked at the EPI um, school inspection is their room to improved. Again, one of their first earliest reports, 2016. But they did a really remarkable study. They looked at the whole of the school's database and they chose schools which had been inspected in the last three years, which had seen either a 15 percentile increase or decrease in value added. So that's a very, very strong research group because it's not looking at a blip in one year, it's looking at a trend. And what EPI found was that schools in the leafy suburbs with advantaged intakes could see a 15 percentile decrease in value added and were still disproportionately like to be judged good or outstanding. Schools in deprived areas could see a 15% increase in value added and still be liked to be judged uh, in special measures or requires improvement. And then when you look at offset inspection judgments, particularly in secondary, it is remarkable the correlation between deprivation and poor results. And the EPI come to the conclusion, which I wholly agree with, that offset are better at inspecting schools on time than coming to valid and reliable judgments. Now, I, you know, politicians know this work the Department for Education know this work. And yet um, we carry merrily on with an inspection system, which I think I can clearly show is invalid and unreliable, uh, which has the effect of compounding uh, workload pressure, 
compounding low-task discretion, promoting shoddy research, and yet still carries merrily on. And sooner or later, and I think it's now getting to sooner, you know, ministers are going to have to... I, I really liken it to um, the man who's lost his car keys and he's searching under a, the bright street lamp, even though he knows his keys are in the muddy ditch. And when you say, where have you dropped your keys? Over there. Well, why are you searching here? Well, here is where the light is. That's what ministers do with Ofsted. They look at wellbeing charters rather than looking at the cause, I think, the root cause of overwork, intensification of work and low task discretion, which I think ends up with Ofsted. And in the end, radical change is going to have to be made to an unreliable and invalid inspection regime. Now, I get in trouble by saying to some of my members and some activists and some left-wingers, I get in trouble because I say you do need an independent accountability system, but one that is valid, reliable, and most importantly, proportionate. I think schools are too small a unit for the level of scrutiny put on them. And I think one grade, you know, all the research tells us that in-school variation of teaching performance is much greater than between school variation. Yeah. So how can you end up with one grade? So in the end, logic tells me that there is going to have to be change. Labour are now saying that Ofsted needs reform. I, you know, so I'm very interested in what that might look like. Um, but it can't be tinkering around the edges. And, you know, at the very least... Ofsted should be subject to external um, uh, external inspection, if you like, through a, through a um, uh, research base about how valid and reliable their inspection judgments are. And absolutely, finally, uh, politicians don't come out well from the book, partly because they're short-term, partly because they're timid. And if you talk about something like inspection... If you're Education Secretary, you want to be able to stand up in the House of Commons and say, 87% of schools are good or outstanding, or whatever it might be. If you were advising whether it's a Conservative or a Labour or a Lib Dem Education Secretary, what are the two or three things that they could do which would start to address the issues in the book and make the education of young people via their teachers and teaching assistants more effective? Well, I'd just say one thing, actually, which is that you're not going to raise educational standards if you have teachers industrially teaching out of their subject area. Uh, if you have schools just topping up their staffing continually by supply teachers who do a very good job, but you know they can't do the job that children's regular teachers need to be done. And um, so if you really want to raise standards, then you have to start protecting the profession. Uh, you've got to start making teaching a job which is doable for teachers. Uh, because if you don't, y y you can hide behind spurious inspection judgments. But in the end, um, the, the, um, you know, the lack of teachers, the chronic lack of teachers that we have now, impacts upon educational standards the most profoundly. And that... Um, uh, um, you know that 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 is something that has to be that has to be done but and i just said i'd do one thing but i'll do one more thing if we want to raise educational standards we have to eradicate child poverty if you look at the countries where um there is far less of you know we do very well in this country by the most able um but we have a long tail of underachievement and then we routinely at 16 fell a third of them mm. no matter what standards mm. they've reached 
Uh, but if we want to raise educational standards on a sustainable basis, we have to uh, solve the teacher supply crisis and we have to stop children coming to school tired because they're sleeping in damp, unsuitable accommodation, in crowded bedrooms, hungry because their parents can't afford to feed them, cold because their parents can't afford to feed uh, to heat their house, with very narrow life experiences because their parents can't afford to take them beyond the home. But why we subject children to this um, industrial level of misery is beyond me. Mary Bowstead, the book is Support Not Surveillance from John Catt. Thanks so much for talking to me about it. Thanks, Jeff. The Askell Leaders Reading Podcast with Jeff Barton.